Hey, y'all, thank you so much for being here and participating in our one service. Also want to welcome those of you again who are watching on our, our video. It is a delight to be back to one service, um, and um, it is so good um, to, to see the Lord's provision um, this past year that the Lord continues to move and work. Uh, in the midst of deep and significant grief and sorrow, the Lord is still providing us children that are healthy and well. The Lord is still leading new people to um, a saving knowledge of him. God is still at work. Can I get an amen? amen? Yeah. All right. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 5 is where we're going to be. We, c- we conclude our last week of the bad news. <laughs> it's been a lot of bad news. And we've been focusing here on verses uh, 2 and 3, in particular the last couple weeks. And this, we come our final time in the midst of the bad news. Pick it up in verse 1. We'll read through verse 5. Hear God's word. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So this is the story of where you once were. Which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved through faith. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God, may it stand forever. We once were lost. That's what we've been looking at. We were dead in sin. We were dead men walking. And in that life, we were under the power of an axis of evil. An axis of evil. The world, the devil, and now this morning, we look at the third. The kingdom of evil's best strategy and most powerful force of destruction. Us. Us. If you... um, had a bank safe, you owned a bank, and it was an amazing, you purchased the best safe out there in the world. It was simply something that no one could really break into, and yet it was tested one day when robbers entered your bank and they attempt to get inside. And they could not get inside except unless it is an inside job. You see, no longer does it matter if the vault is sealed tightly, if It is the most strong and secured vault in the world. If there is someone on the inside, the robbers can get in. The kingdom of evil is the world and the devil. They have an inside man in achieving their destructive forces and work in this world. The world, the devil, and now we look this morning at what Apostle Paul here calls the flesh. We have been looking at our lostness, our deadness in sin, where we walked under the power of this world and under the power of the evil one and follow him. And now we also see that we've walked under the power of our own flesh. But in seeing this, we've also been looking each week, essentially every week we've had two points, your lostness and then the grace of God and what it looked like to save you. We're not necessarily looking this morning at what it looks like to fight the flesh. That's not really what we're looking at. We're simply looking at the goodness of God's story and looking back, back to where we were in our lostness and how good God was and the means by which he has saved us from our lostness. We've looked at the grace of God that saved us from the world and that saved us from the evil one. And this week we now look to see how we are saved. Well, how we are saved from us, from ourselves. 
So we're simply going to ask to give us order and structure to our time this morning, ask two questions. What does it mean that we lived in the passions of the flesh or simply in the flesh? Don't let the word flesh mislead you. There is a way in which the Bible speaks about the flesh in which it simply talks about your body and your bodily experience. This is not a statement as is often believed in the medieval theology and in the early theology of the, what were called the Gnostics. And also Plato held this, which is that the body is bad and the spirit is good. This is behind many, many religions in which it is to remove yourself and get into some spiritual uh, meditative place to outside of the body is the core of what we should be seeking to do. The Bible doesn't say the body is bad, but God likes bodies. He took one on. If the body was inherently evil, then Jesus having a body would have been evil himself. Matter was created by God and God looked at matter and looked at the physical world and said, it is very good. It is not saying that the body is bad and spirit good, but it is what this is saying here is telling us something about our human nature, our nature in our human experience that involves both the body and the spirit. We've been given definitions about the world, the flesh, and the devil in the last couple of weeks, and so let me give you simply very clearly the, the flesh defined. The term flesh is a metaphor for our sinful nature, the core of who we are, our nature that shapes every aspect of our being to live apart from God and against God. If you remember the last couple of weeks, we, we talked about the world, that the world is the kingdom of evil that rises up against God and his kingdom. And we looked at the evil one, that he is the emanating force, emanating force behind the world. And at the core of the evil one is this desire to be against God and to lead others to be against God. And so it is with the flesh. The flesh is every aspect of our nature that seeks to draw us away from God, to do life apart from God and even against God. This nature presses into and is made visible in all aspects of our being, every single part, from the, your, your most deepest desires to your minds, to your feelings and emotions, to our physical longings and inclinations, and into our actions of our life. When the Bible says flesh, it's talking about the mode of being, the mode of being. By nature and by choice, all humanity are curved in on ourselves to live apart from God and against God. And it is not simply episodic or seasonal or behavioral. It is who you are. It's who you are. It's your nature. It's a nature that is apart from God and against God, against God. Everything in your human nature, it resists the rule of God in your life. You're born in this world resisting God's rule. Unless God changes our hearts, our hearts are allergic to him. Allergic. At the center of the flesh is the reflexive action that represses God and his influence. When we encounter God, the, in, the, the re reflex of the, of the human nature is to say, I want nothing to do with him. Romans 8, verses 6 through 8, draw this out in even uh, greater thickness than Ephesians chapter 2, 3 does. It says this, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. That comparison. For the mind that is set on the flesh is what? A hostile to God. It's not that it's apathetic to God. It is hostile to God's. The mindset in the flesh is hostile to God. And you say, the earthly, the earthly man, the natural man says, hostile, I'm not hostile. You ever been in a fight with your spouse and like, hey, listen, you need to calm down. You're really angry. And you're like, what? I'm not angry. What are you talking about? 
You're like, uh, that's example A right there. <laughs> I'm not hostile. I just want to be left alone. That's what Aunt Edna says, right? We bring her up again. I'm not hostile to God. I just want God to have nothing to do with me. That's what we say. He said, our hostility towards God is not us maybe necessarily shaking our fists at God, but it is the quiet desire to control our lives, to say to God, could you just leave me alone? Just don't tell me what to do. I don't remember electing you to be king of my life, and so will you just stay away? I'm doing fine on my own. Walking in the flesh does not necessarily have to produce violence or rampant immorality. It can simply be a life of balance, a natural drives that simply uninfluenced by the will and way of God will actually do everything to run away from God, to not desire to please him. It is therefore not hard to walk in the flesh. All you have to do is get up. That's all it takes. Just wake up and you'll walk in the flesh. It comes naturally to us. Now, perhaps you're not somebody who necessarily likes, the Bible is not something you necessarily, it's not a common act of place of truth for you. Well, let me, what about somebody who's a great thinker of our day? There's George Saunders, he is a prolific writer uh, of short essays and stories and novels, and many in the literary world consider, consider him to be one of the, the world's best living writers. And his most famous work was actually at a commencement address he gave at Syracuse University in 2013. And it was a commencement address that actually went viral. It was actually, over the next couple of weeks, printed in newspapers all over the country in the world because of the significance of what it said and the way in which people seemed to gravitate and acknowledge that what he said was true. And he was talking about the grads in this commencement speech about his regrets. As an old man, he said, I want to spare you of my re the regrets that I have in life. And he said his greatest regret in life, and he gives various anecdotes in his life about things that might be, he could think of as regrettable. For example, he said, oh, it was not the greatest regret in my life that I went skinny dipping in the Sumatra and then looking up and saw 300 monkeys sitting on a pipeline above the river, pooping into the very river in which I was swimming with my mouth open. He said, I was ill for seven months. Now that, he said, was not my greatest regrets. He said, instead, my greatest regret was this, were those things I looked back in life and saw my failures of kindness. And reflecting on his failures of kindness, he then wrote, now the million dollar question is, what is our problem? We think we wanna be kinder, so why aren't we kinder? And he answered that question this way. He said, here's what I think. Each of us, each of us is born with a born with, born with your nature, born with a series of built-in confusions. These confusions, he said, are threefold. One, that I am central to the universe. That my story is the main and most interesting story, the only story, really, that matters. Second, that we're separate from the rest of the universe. There, uh, there, there, where I'm me and everybody else is that or them. There's us and then there's out there all the other stuff, such as dogs and swing sets in the state of Nebraska and low-hanging clouds and, you know, other people. It's all about me and everybody else is outside of that. And third, the belief that we're permanent. That death is real, okay, but not really for me. And he says, now, what we, real, don't, we don't really believe these things. Intellectually, we know better. But he says, we believe them viscerally, and we show it by the way that we live. We live by them, and they cause us to prioritize our own needs over the needs of others. In other words, what is his answer to why we're not kinder? Because of the nature of man, our embedded confusions. Now, that diagnosis of the universe is no different than what the Bible says. Now, the New York Times and many other uh, 
publications went on to declare that George Saunders writes with brilliant, insightful, and brutal honesty. But the Apostle Paul is considered old-fashioned and pessimistic by his approach. Both Saunders and the Bible are saying the same thing. This is the life in the flesh, and this is our default setting, the mode in which we live. It's about me, apart from God, apart from anybody else. We can't help ourselves. It's the water we swim in. Paul continues in Romans chapter 8. He says, For the mind is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. And what does he say? Indeed, it cannot, for those who are in the flesh cannot please God. God. Therefore, what this means is that even those things that appear lovely in our lives and simple and even what outwardly are good come from evil desires that do not please God. In other words, what Romans 7 and 8, 8, 7 and 8 is saying, that this is an issue not simply of the actions of our life, but the motivations of our life. You say, what does that mean? Aren't, aren't people capable of doing good things that please God? Doesn't it please God when someone serves with doctors without borders? Doesn't it please God to feed the hungry around our city? Doesn't it please God to teach inner city youth how to read? Yes, those things are right and good to do. And we can still do right things even while doing them though out of a bad motivation. But ultimately they are still considered evil because they are not for the glory of God. They're still for the glory of self. T.S. Eliot put it this way, to do the right thing for the wrong reason is high treason. To do the right thing for the wrong reason is still high treason. The basic motivation may simply be to hang on to respectability, to live a balanced, outwardly good life, but this life of simplicity and goodness is a life in order to be apart from God. That is Aunt Edna. And that is how you come into this world naturally living. And this sinful nature affects all aspects of our humanity, all of it. I already said this and stated this, but you see this in the text. In verses, verse 3, it says it this way. That we all once lived in the passions, that's one. Second, in carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. The body, the passions, the body, and the mind. The passions, the word is epithumia, which means super desires or over desires. It means disordered desire, it looks at things, even good things like career and money and family and approval, and it sucks those good things to be the very center of your heart and life, and you over desire them above God's unregulated passion and desire. It can be set upon one thing or another, and sometimes outwardly it looks really, really bad, and sometimes it looks really, really good. For example, I have a, I have a, a sister who has for years struggled with obsessive compulsive disorder. And what that meant like for her for, for many, many years was that she would sneak food and she would hide it under her bed. And the reason why she ultimately, we had, we had to get her help is we found years worth of mildewing food under her bed. Bowls and plates, and things she, would, she didn't want anybody to know. And the response, though, in her life over time, what, you know what it's been? Is to become somebody who is obsessive about working out. Now, one creates somebody who looks fit and tan and beautiful. The other appears to look like chaos. But both of them are disordered desires, super desires, things that take over her life. And fleshliness affects, it affects our desires, but you know, it also affects your body. It says it affects your body. The very inclinations of your body. The problem is that our bodies, not that they're inherently evil when they were made, but they have been wrongly programmed by our sinful nature in which we were born. We were born with sinful nature and therefore that affected our body's appetites. 
While the body is in and of itself not evil, the effects of evil are reside in our bodies so that our bodies want to do things. And it has its own agenda, you might even say. Your bodies want to go places and do certain things that God's word and that God himself says, that is off limits. And yet your body itches for it. It incites your body. And you're, so you respond to stimuli in certain ways. And this, the body becomes a problem for us. You want things. Your body literally wants things that if you had not been fallen and broken and have an evil nature, you would not want. You would not want. When we think of fleshly sins, though, we, of the body, what do we think of? Well, you can think of them pretty quickly, right? Galatians 5, 19 through 21 gives us a great list of them. Now, the works of the flesh are... These sound like fleshly sins. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. That sounds fleshly. And things like these. The flesh affects the very desires, the instincts of what you're, and the cravings of the body. In fact, so much so that Paul, and fighting against his own cravings of his body, said, oh, he was like, I want to be done with this body and all of its cravings. But this sinful nature, this fleshly nature, does not simply affect the body and the desires. It also affects the mind. Our mind and our reasoning, the intellectual part of us is affected. It says this in Ephesians 4, chapter 4, verse 18. They, speaking of those who are lost, are darkened in their understanding, alienated from God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Their nature causes them to be fools. Therefore, they can hear a perfect argument for the existence of God or for the love of God, and they will deny it. Colossians 1 and Romans 6 both tell us that our minds, your mind is hostile to God. The mind concocts ways of living and doing and makes sense of the world in a way that says, I want God out of my life. That is how, the wor- how your mind is, is programmed to work. Let me give you an illustration of this. Man-made religions are all, they are concocted from man's minds in our way of dealing with God of seeking to be made right with God, of assuaging God, of gaining God's favor in a way, in a way that doesn't allow God to tell us what to do and ultimately in a way that we don't have to trust him. You know, the true most frequent descriptions in the Bible for fleshliness are one, the one given in Galatians 5, that tend to be things like sexual illustrations, but the second, the second is pharisaical self-righteousness. That means there's a religious and an irreligious version of fleshliness. The mind of the religious person dialogues like this. If I want to find acceptance with God, then I have to be the best Pharisee that ever lived. I have to pile up works of righteousness. I have to climb up on a mountain. And by that, I will enter into the very presence of God. Who is the center of your life in that moment? I, I, I. The life of the religious person still makes it all about us. This is what we call idolatrous living. And remember that Paul, the writer of our text, was a man who was a Pharisee. He did not commit adultery. He kept the law perfectly. He did not drink, chew, or go go with girls who do. He did not do any of these things. He was a religious man of strict principle. He would have looked good on the outside. He would have had a sterling resume religiously. But in verse 3, he says, All once lived following the desires of the flesh, and that includes himself. Himself. So don't include this, that simply because if you're not a glutton or a drunkard or a sexual deviant, that you're not living in the flesh. The flesh may manifest itself in a variety of ways because of your temperament, your training, and your association. But ultimately, we will move down a channel that is simply the flesh floating through life on a lazy river. 
That's what it is. And therefore, here's what we find. We are the problem. Cartoonist and cultural commentator stated it well through the mouth of this cute little character called Pogo the Possum. He said, we have an enemy, and he is us. Johnny Cash simply put it, there is a powerful beast inside of me. Thomas Watson, a Puritan, said it this way, the flesh is a bosom traitor. It is like a Trojan horse within my own walls, which does all sorts of mischief. The flesh is a sly enemy. The flesh always sides with Satan. And Amy Carmichael and I wrote a little poem, God hardened me against myself, hardened me against my flesh, myself, arch traitor to myself, my hallowest friend, my deadliest foe. Therefore, we are the problem. Jeremiah 17 verse nine says the heart is what? Deceitful. That means you lie to yourself. You lie to yourself. And not only that, you're not just lying to yourself, you're enslaved to your flesh. It has, it's your nature. It has absolute control over you. The flesh is weak. We cannot resist the temptations of the world and devil, and we want to give in. Our flesh loves to receive the temptations of the evil one, and we accept it. We're like Oscar Wilde. What's the best way to deal with temptation? To give in to it. That's the best way. In Thomas Costain's history, who gives, he gives the life of a man named Reinhold III. He was a 14th century duke in what is now Belgium. And Reinhold had a, an interesting punishment in his life. After a violent quarrel, Reinhold's younger brother Edward led a successful revolt against him. And Edward ultimately captured his older brother Reinhold, but he did not kill him. Instead, instead, he built a room around Reinhold in the castle and promised him that he would regain his title and property as soon as he was able to leave the room. Now, this would not have been difficult for most people. He put windows in the room. He put a normal-sized door in the room. But the issue was Reinhold's size. To regain his freedom, he had to lose weight. But Edward knew his older brother, and each day he would send him delicious food, a buffet. He sent him Golden Corral into his house. And when Duke Edward was accused of being cruel, of cruelty for imprisoning his brother, he responded, my brother is not a prisoner. He may leave whenever he wills. Now, in one way, that's true, right? He wasn't a true prisoner, but he was a prisoner of something. What was he a prisoner of? His own will. His own will. He was captivated by his lusts and by his will. For example, this is us. This is who we were before God saved us. Let me give you the illustration of lions. If you took two bulls and put them in front of a lion in a cage, and you said, here, Mr. Lion, is the raw meat, bloody and fatty and warm, and this is a spinach salad. And the lion is free to choose whichever bowl he wants to. Which one will he choose? 100 times out of 100, he will choose the meat. He will never choose the spinach. He does not see food there. Why? It is against his nature. And that's what Romans 8, and that's what Ephesians 2 tells us, that we are enslaved to the flesh, and this flesh, the desires, this natural to who we are, will lead us to death. It's so crazy. Do you see the capabilities of who man is? Do you see the accomplishments that we're able to, to, to do in this world? Build bridges and airplanes that, that defy sound and, and do incredible, create computers and microchips. And yet, time after time after time, the world's greatest men are taking down the impulses of their flesh. 
Think about this. Bill Clinton reached the, the apex of world power. The apex of world power. And yet he was willing to throw it all away because of one significant impulse in his life. You see, the natural who we are and how it pulls itself into our life, it becomes black holes. Just ask Matt Lauer, Al Franken, Kevin Spacey, Bill O'Reilly, Louis C.K., Charlie Rose over the last couple of years. Revelation after revelation of scandalous behavior that ruined the lives of those who appeared to have it all together and had successful lives. Because there was a black hole of life, of self, that sucked everything else into it and ultimately brought ruin. They got rich, they got good looking, they had many successes, but life fell. You see, the flesh promises life, but ultimately it leads us down a road to death. I was reading this week with, at bedtime this wonderful little book, which uh, I was reading with, with, with Drew and Chapel about the creatures of the sea. And um, it, it, some, you know, some of these pictures, are, they're beautiful and striking, but then some of these creatures are, frankly, I cannot believe we read about them going to bed. And one of them was the anglerfish. You ever seen the anglerfish? This thing is one of the most disgusting creatures in the world. And it lives at the very, very deepest, darkest parts of the ocean. And if you've seen the anglerfish, it has this bizarre, it looks like it, you know, it, it's just, you know, something went wrong in the creating of the anglerfish. But it has this, like, electrolytic kind of thing that comes off its head and creates a light at the depths of the ocean such that fish are drawn to the light. They think that's where life is. But underneath that little, that thing on its head that's creating that light is a mouth that is wide open with sharp teeth. That's what the flesh does. It says this is life and this is light when in reality there's a black hole of darkness that will do nothing but kill us. And therefore, Therefore, we have to kill us, or we will kill us. But here, here's what that means. All of your struggling and fighting against you, guess who's doing it? And what nature is fighting against you? You are. You're fighting against you. Therefore, you can only fight in a way that's still natural to man and that's sinful. We are like those who are stuck in the mud, and all of our struggling only sinks us deeper and deeper and suffocates us more. More of me. More of me is bad. Bad news. <laughs> All right, every week we give you the bad news. Oh, that's it. That's the last of the bad news. Three weeks of bad news. Everybody, we can breathe. Here's what I want to see in all of this. Our problem is us. Our problem is us. And so we need a new us. A new us. And, and here I want, I want to communicate to you in all this series, the reason why I'm going to go through these things is I want you to see the greatness of your salvation, the greatness of God's grace. The problem is not ultimately simply that we've done a few bad actions, but it's our very nature. And therefore, we need a salvation that strikes down at the very heart of who we are. At the heart of who we are. We need a salvation that involves not just a change of lifestyle, not a reformed version of us, or a salvation that takes away simply the results of our fleshly activity. We need a salvation that involves a whole new self. And so what does God do to save us from the flesh? What does God do to save you from you? Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, what did he do? He made us alive. He made us alive together with Christ. With Christ. Now that phrase, with Christ, it's also, also put in other places called in Christ. This is the most important prepositional phrase in the whole Bible. It is the most significant phrase just about in all the New Testament. The good news will be called, theologically, we call it the union with Christ. 
that we are with Christ. Not only that, but we are in Christ. Now that's union, that's connection, that's intimacy. He is in us and we are in him. That is the truth of the New Testament. Now this idea that we see here, it just merely alluded to in Ephesians 2, 5, that you are made alive with Christ is given greater flesh in other places, such as Colossians 3, 1 through 3. It says this, if you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and set your minds on the things that are above, and on the things of the earth, for you, have, for you have died, and your life is hidden in God. This is to say, this idea of the idea of the union with Christ is this, is that your Christianity is not that I'm emulating Christ, Though I am as a Christian, that's not the main thing. The essence of being a Christian is not that I'm simply listening to Christ or that I'm obeying Christ or that I'm admiring Christ or that I'm even loving Christ. All those things should be true of a Christian. That's not the main thing. The main thing of our salvation is that we are a Christian is that you are in Christ. My life is in Christ. Not only did Jesus die for me, but I died with him. I died with him. Now that Jesus rise for me, but I was raised to new life with him spiritually. This is a mystery. When we say that when Jesus died, I died. But like the old, old spiritual says, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And the answer that is assumed in that old hymn is, yes, you were there. You were there. Is that a mystery? Yes. Do we understand it? No. But foundationally being hidden with Christ, being united to Christ, means his past is our past. His present is our present. His future is our future. Now there are two aspects of the good news there. I just wanna dive into for just a second. It means this, there's the good news of your death. You have to be killing you or you will be killing you. And the good news of union with Christ is you died. We tend to think of our salvation in terms of Jesus taking away my actions. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what we think about that is that he simply took all my bad activities. He did the bad things that I've done. He took my sins, and that is so true. But your problem is deeper than that, isn't it? It's not simply that you did a few bad things or thought a few bad things. It's that you are sinful. It's not your life. It's you that's the problem. My whole being is the problem. And the work of the cross actually meets us right there at that issue. You see, Jesus was exposed and rejected because there was something wrong with him at the cross. He bore your sin. But we can extend it and say this. Jesus was exposed and rejected because there wasn't simply something that he, he took on him in your sin. He took on everything that was shameful and sinful about you. In other words, on the cross, he didn't just take your sins. He bore you. You, with all of your weakness, with all of your shame, and understand the New Testament, understand that Jesus does not simply take your record, he takes you upon himself. He is taking your shame, your sinful nature. In other words, Jesus takes on these things and he puts you to death. That's what it says in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It doesn't say Jesus took my sins and crucified those in Christ. He took me and crucified me in him. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And so I have good news, good news for you today. You've died. You died. Meaning that old nature that once held you captive, that had rule and dominion and control of your life, that was leading you down a path of death, that nature died as a ruling and captivating force in your life. He took on your nature. 
And what this means is the reign of flesh. The reign of flesh is done. The power of the flesh, which used to be irresistible, is no longer irresistible. Its influence is broken, and it's on the run. You see, not only are you rescued from the penalty of your sins, but you're rescued from your very nature as well. And so this union with Christ, this union with Christ means that the master of our old nature is dethroned. Dethroned. That your flesh used to say, you have to do this. You have to go this direction. The master is called me, but that master is no longer in charge. This is why in Romans 8 verse 2, it says that we have been set free from the master of self. But not only that, but you can be brought into a new master. It's called the spirit of God to master you. I heard the story of a, a man who was extremely proficient in jazz. A white dude who was proficient in jazz. Now, because of this particular skill in his life, this meant that he played in a lot of African-American churches. And he noticed something about African-American churches in comparison to white churches. That in white churches, we tend to talk about God as our brother and our friend and our savior. But that in African-American churches, they seem to talk about Jesus as master. Now he thought, why in the world would they be attracted to Jesus as master, given the history of the African-Americans in our, in our country? Where does that come from? And so he asked. Of course, they said, our answer is our history. The answer traces to our past. It comes from the era of being in, under indentured servitude. But it was this, using the word master is not some Stockholm syndrome, to be, but it was to be subversive, to be subversive. It says the Bible says, they would say the Bible says, Man can have, what, two masters? No, just one. Just one master. And so they would trumpet Jesus as the new master in their life. It was a way of subversively telling their earthly overlord, you are not the ultimate master of me. You can go pound sand. I have a new master. He runs my life. His inclinations run my life. What he says to do, that I follow. And therefore, the good news is not just that you died, but now that you're alive in Christ. The good news of the gospel is that you died, but you've been made alive. It says this in all the verses we just looked at. Ephesians 2, 5, he made us alive together with Christ. Colossians 3, 1 through 3, if you then have been raised with Christ, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Galatians 2, 20, I've been crucified, but it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And how does he live in us? By his Spirit. And this is the comparison we see in Romans chapter 8, verses th- verse 4 and 6. It says, walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. These are the two forces at work. You can walk according to your flesh, or you can walk according to the Spirit of Christ Jesus. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit leads to what? Life and peace and joy. Having the Spirit means nothing less than having the incarnate, obedient, crucified, resurrected, and reigning Jesus in you, in you. We had an old master. He was called you. He was called the self. It was called the me, myself, and I. But now we have a new master, and his name is the Spirit of Christ. And do you not realize this about yourself? That part of the gospel story is not just that your sins were taken away, but you got a whole new ruling master, a whole new you in your life. The Spirit of Christ now leads you and guides you and empowers you. Now, here's what this is important. We're not going to get to spend a whole lot of time on what it looks like to fight the flesh as a Christian. We get no time. We simply are just looking at the good news of what he has done. 
But understand that the good news is not that he comes in your life as, as if he's the, the pace car at the Daytona 500. No, he comes into your life more like the engine on a train, like the locomotive. We do not follow in our strength. We are led by his power. That's what you have living in you. For those who wrestle with the old nature, that old nature has been dethroned. But the old nature likes to act like it's still in charge, doesn't it? It likes to rise up. And so for you, if you're wrestling with your old nature, when it seeks to lead you in a way that involves not trusting God, not living for God, when it seeks to leave you down a way that feels good to your flesh and everything in your fallen body says, I can't resist this, just give in. Everything in me longs for this sensation and longs to take control of my life and longs to be the arbiter and determiner of what is good and true and beautiful. I call you to remember this. You have a new power in you. You have a new master. You don't have to give in to the impulses of your body or the leading of your weak and foolish mind. You've been given a new master and you have a new power. And this is so much better news than the, than the, news we, and the good news we usually give Christians. You see, it, it, the good news would be like, if my son is frustrated about his jump shot and I come to him and, you know, and I'm looking at him and he's mixing shot after shot, you know, here's the news we normally give people. So here's the good news. I would say to him, just shoot like Steph Curry, son. Just go watch him and do that. And this is often the good news, quote unquote, we give to people. Just, you know, would you just be a little, a little more like Jesus? Shoot like Jesus. Get a life jumper like Jesus. Now understand from my child, if I told him to just to shoot like Steph Curry, what would he do? He'd throw the ball up, he'd walk inside, and he wouldn't play again. It would be so frustrating. That's what we do when we say, well, just live like Jesus. You can't, not on your own. But here's the good news. What if I said this? What if I said, son, it was this amazing thing. Steph Curry has agreed to impart all of his powers and all of his skills and all of his abilities to you. Now that would be good news. You have it. That's actually what we have in Jesus. That the good news is not, try harder to be more like Jesus. No, the good news is, no, Jesus has come to live inside of you. And he's teaching you, and he's remaking you, and reforming you, and so you live by his power to defeat sin in your life. Now, in each of these areas, understand we're redeemed. We're redeemed at the core of our desires. We're redeemed in our minds. We're redeemed in our emotions and our feelings, and even our very bodies will be redeemed. And with this new nature, he's transforming all of you. This is why it's important. We want to, we want to, we talk about here, one of our values is, is, is that we want holistic disciples. We don't simply want you to be a disciple who's, you, you've, you've trained your mind how to think. That's really important. The Bible says to do that. It, it's not just simply that you feel right. It's not simply that you do right. We want all of them because when his power enters in, it affects everything in your life the Holy Spirit inside of you. And because of that power, it leads you to live a radically, radically new life and a glorified life in the future. Romans 8, verses nine through 11, our last passage for the day, it says this. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, that old body, it's crumpling away, right? The spirit, though, is life because of righteousness. Your body is, almost, it's real and it's almost a symbol of what's going on in all aspects of your life. Your body is dead. <laughs> We're just eroding away. I got knee problems. I'm 39 years old. I have back problems. My hips hurt. I don't even know what's going on. 
My body's already decaying. It's ridiculous. But instead, these bodies are, they were once used to simply just, just go after any instinct of our body and displease God with our body. Now our bodies, even though they're decaying, can be used to what? Glorify God. Sin was your slave master. Your body was being used to serve your flesh. But now, but now, your hands, your feet, your eyes, your nose, the members of your body are now to be used for the glory of God. And they are broken tools, aren't they? They are broken tools. They are worn out tools because of, because of the sin and the fall. But the Lord does wondrous things with broken bodies to, redeemed, to redeem us. With a redeemed nature inside, and it's interesting that God is willing to use such broken tools, such broken bodies for his purposes. It's so good. God wants the bodies of believers to be used as instruments for his redeeming work in this world. Dan Allender, he's a Christian psychologist and counselor and author. Dan Allender, he has worked for many, many years working with those who are in, in stopping the global sex trade before it was popular to do that. He counsels social workers who are trying to step into this awful practice and whose own lives, those who are stepped into this and it's what they've seen and experienced is so traumatizing that those who are not even in the sex field are, and trying, simply trying to get people out are so traumatized and he does counseling with them. And he counsels these women who have been brought out. Dan himself, Dan himself, his life is a picture of beauty. But honestly, you know what? If you've ever seen Dan Allender, he is the picture of ugliness. I mean, seriously, I'm not sure I've seen a more creepy human being. He looks sinister and gaunt. His skin is pallowed and it's, it's, he's, he almost looks evil. Huh. You know why? Because he caught malaria while visiting a camp in South Asia ministering to the sex workers there. And his body is now <laughs> broken. But his life is a picture. His body is eroding away. But his life becomes more beautiful. That very body that is being eroded away is now being used for the glory of God. The effects of sin and the fall continue to ravage it, but his life, his spirit becomes something more and more glorious. And what is to come for us? For us, let me ask you this. Are you weary of struggling with sin? For you are on this side. The great good news of Jesus is he saved you. But aren't you, you're like, well, why am I not done? Because you're not brought into heaven yet. Aren't you, aren't you weary, though, of struggling with the, the leftover residual temptations of the body, of the old desires, of terrible thinking? Aren't you tired of it? Well, guess what? The good news is one day that will go away, too. Romans 8, verse 11 says this, that the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul tells us in this passage and in 1 Corinthians 15 that this spiritual body that we're gonna get is we're gonna get a glorified and new body one day. And it will come with none of those old temptations. It will be a resurrected body. It was, it's your earthly body is sown into the ground, but a radical change will occur. Through the resurrection, the body will transform from something that is perishable, dishonorable, and weak, like an old seed, to something that is wholly new, that is imperishable and glorious and powerful. And so I might say this, if you know somebody who's died, and you'd say, why did they have to die? You would say, don't you want them to win? Because in dying, and dying, that body is like a seed that is planted into the ground and is raised into something beautiful. That is your future. That is your future. And what he has done and giving you a new nature, and that new nature will blossom and flourish into something glorious and beautiful so that you will be you in heaven. Oh, but you will be something 
something so beautiful, the rest of us would be tempted to bow down and worship. Praise be to God. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray.